Welcome to the New Hope Sermon of the Week. We hope you are encouraged by this message by Pastor Tom Sturbins. I love how... (laughs) I love how engaging the spirit of truth so frequently alters the word of truth. Um, I've prayed, I've prepared, as a matter of fact, I've preached all five sermons that I'm about to preach you. No, I'm serious. I'm kind of joking. I, but no, seriously, I've, I've, I've just worn somebody's ear out this week at least once on each of them, <laughs> each of the points. And I, I, I sort of warned the staff on Tuesday morning as I was sharing with them what I thought we'd be going towards. I won't quite get there. I said, pray for me. And, but here was the reason behind it that I didn't say to them, and just a little image this morning as I was praying, when I began in ministry, <clears throat> um, the understanding the Word of God, I saw it as a connected web. Think of like a, um, a net, a fishing net, <clears throat> okay? And nets become, come in all sizes. Clearly, it has cohesion because all of the threads are connected. But I thought this morning and actually this week that the fabric of the Word of God when I began was more like a net than a piece of cloth. I knew it was all connected, but there were lots of gaps. And through the years of continuing to study that, that net has, I I, I thank God, continues to be filled in with more threads to where it's no longer a net, but it's more like a tapestry, and there's not a day hardly, certainly a week that goes by where I I go back and read something I've read a thousand times, and suddenly it takes on a brand new depth or definition because another thread has been sewn into an already existent fabric of truth that's held here. Beloved, that's why you need to be in the Word of God regularly. Hebrews 4.12 says that the Word of God is living and active. the, the, the Greek term for living is best understood in a way that we can't communicate it. It's lifing, lifing, okay? It, it, it suggests the contagious, infectious nature of like a virus. It's lifing. In other words, it doesn't just bring you life, it makes you alive. It's infectious. And I've used a little illustration of a, of a, in the past of what we've called here the green glob, you know? That, that astronauts returned from the other side of the universe in, in one of these sci-fi flicks. They fought the battle with the aliens. They come off the spaceship and everybody says, did you survive? Oh, we made it home. And then the camera zooms in on this little green glob and it's moving and it starts to crawl up and starts to get on the neck and no one even notices. And then it like goes in his ear or his nose or eyeball or something gross. And all of a sudden, you know what's happening. They didn't win the aliens taking over. I love how Paul picks up on this language. And he didn't know anything about aliens or spaceship, but he uses that word. He says, you know, we have become aliens. Well, how do we get that? We were infected by one. Please understand that. Not only that, see, once that green glob gets inside the guy, all of a sudden you see him transform into this horrible looking alien creature or mix or metamorphosis of human with the alien. And that takes on the whole sci-fi flick right? I'm praying this. I'm going to pick on husbands as I do so often. Every wife here, I'm going to be looking for you in about 45 seconds to shout amen. If you're watching online, you can just shout amen. Here's my prayer. 
for every husband here, for every man, for every person, but I'm going to pick on those men. That today the word of God would become green glob that would get on you. Be glad this isn't a youth camp because when I taught that at a youth camp, I actually had a bunch of green slime and I took it and threw it. It was fun. I need to do that here some morning, I think. The kids had to come back. See, adults will have the choice. I'm not going there. He's going to throw something at me, you know. But I'm going to pray that you're going to walk out of this place, get in your car. Maybe the attitude you came with is still hanging on. But as you begin to drive home, the green glob begins to crawl up in your shoulder. It begins to get in your ear, and it goes straight to your heart. And all of a sudden, instead of being the grumpy person that drove here, you become this person of joy whose conversation and speech suddenly changes to the point that your wife would look over across the car in dramatic horror at the creature you've suddenly become. Paul said we become a new creation, a new creature, okay? So I'm going to pray that your wife has a, who are you and what did you do with my husband? Wife, shout amen. Amen. (laughs) Oh, Lord have mercy. I always pick on the husbands. You want to know why? Because when the wives shout amen, men be able to deal with it. If I flipped the script and men looked over and shouted amen strongly, it would have baggage. All the men say amen. Amen. I am bound and determined to get in trouble before I leave here today, aren't I? (laughs) Okay, let's do this. Oh, my goodness gracious. Here's what got me. Love is breaking through and the lamb is in the room. But I want to talk to you about a room that the lamb entered that we read right by. Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5. Gabe, you're going to have to follow me because of all of the scripture that I did send you to get ready for, none of these are there. So let me, give me one second. If you want to open on your phones, pads, Bibles, whatever, to Revelation chapter 5, we can do a jumping off point there. We have visited it so frequently. For those of you that may be believers and you're hearing the pastor say, Revelation, oh my, that means charts, graphs, ah, predictions of things to come, who the two witnesses are, who the Antichrist is, what the great beasts are, and and all of that. We're not doing that. I have long held that the primary benefit and value of the book of Revelation, we typically, we seal it up. Even though this book conspicuously wasn't sealed up, we seal it up by supposing that it has only to do with prophetic, apocalyptic, whatever word we want, eschatological future things, and is of no benefit to us now. Beloved, please hear me, nothing could be further from the truth, because there are multiple dimensions or levels that you can interpret. What I believe about the book is it's the most wonderful handbook on worship and warfare. It is the most wonderful handbook on worship and warfare, but we tend to not read it because we leave it locked up thinking we need to know charts, graphs, and all of that. And that, while that may or may not be true, it's not the primary benefit. Now, what happens in Revelation 4, the writer of the book, John, I had you turn to 5, stay there with me. But um, he said that, the, that he's on the Isle of Patmos. That means John was sent there. He was sentenced there. It was an imprisonment island, and a uh, very small island. And it starts off by saying he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. I've always believed that's code word for John because when John, who also wrote the Gospel of John, chapter 4, verse 23, says that worship is... To worship the Lord is worshiping in, here it comes, spirit and in truth. 
So much later when he would write, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. There are many who believe, I'm one of them, that he was just saying, and there's a reason why he sort of used code so that the churches would understand, but that uh, the, the Roman emperors and whatnot who would be scrutinizing these letters, in other words, they wouldn't be running filters on Facebook and able to determine what it was John was really saying. Everybody got what I just said? Okay, great. They would say, <clears throat> I was in the spirit on the Lord's day um, because what he would begin to say is I saw a throne and one on it and Caesar would take immediate offense to that. So he's saying this, whatever he's saying, it communicated to the church right past the years of culture. <laughs> so he said, I looked and I saw one on a throne. I saw a throne and one on it, and that's great news. And he describes a whole other world. Jesus, or the, the, the Father, invites him into another dimension and he steps into. I believe it was not just a vision, I believe that he was transported into the heavenly scene. Now from chapter four on through to, oh, I didn't refresh myself on this because it was this song that messed me up this morning. Through chapter 12 or 14, what we forget is there's an ongoing, the scene of the throne room in the heavenlies continues. It's the ongoing development, and John's viewpoint is from the throne room. We forget that so often, okay? Why is that important? Because as you enter uh, John chapter 5, he's just, uh, John has described, excuse me, Revelation chapter 5, John has just described the scene, and he does it sort of from the inside out. I, I, I keep saying, at some point, I'm going to have the budget to hire an animator where I can animate some of these things that I want you to see that will be so cool. I, I just think it's so cool. Um, uh, I've, often, I've often threatened you with trying to invite you inside my head. <clears throat> my wife understands that that may not be a courageous endeavor. So only the people behind me laugh. Thank you, the mean people are up here. Um, but John sees the throne in the middle and one on the throne, uh, the, 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 God the Father. Uh, he's, he's, he's identified as, as, as the one on the throne. And then out from that are these seraphim, these incredible angelic beings that are described um, in, in, let's see, Isaiah and Ezekiel. They first show up in the Garden of Eden, incredible, powerful, horrific beings. And, for per- and on purpose, they're meant to sort of hold people back and hold them away. And you see that in Isaiah 6. And why are they sort of holding them back? Because the only way you can get to the throne and not die, in other words, if you step into the presence of God and you are not holy, you die. But something, <clears throat> something helped facilitate that here in just a moment. And what's also interesting, and I've noted a thousand times, is after you leave chapter 4, you do hear from the seraphim again, but they're not saying holy anymore. And that shows up in 5, 9, and 13 and other, and, and, and other places in the book. And that's conspicuous because there's something that, re, that replaces that. And there's a reason. So when you come to the end of chapter 4, chapter 4 is entirely about the, uh, the throne and him who sits on it, everything to him. But chapter 5, all of this worship shifts because something happens. And we're going to pick up there in, in the scriptural narrative. Uh, Revelation chapter 5. It says, and I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, that's God the Father, if you will, a book written inside and on the back. That's a scroll or a book, depending on translation. It was sealed up with seven seals. It would have been understood to be something very much like a will. The seven seals would have indicated, you know, like a will that we uh, leave behind for others to read. But it couldn't be opened, and that's a problem. 
And watch, anybody ever use the phrase, well, I just want to know the will of God? Okay? Well, that really become the, the, ling- the language sort of converge here. And what it suggests is to this point, whatever the will of God is, isn't able to be opened, but it's about to be opened. It just needs somebody worthy to open it. Verse 2, and I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy? Worthy to open the book and to break its seals. No one in heaven or earth or under the earth was able to open the book and look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or look into it. Now, if you read these two verses and then the verses that follows, you got to wonder two things. Either what he's about to see was withheld from his view or he just missed it. And either could be true. I don't have time to chase that, but watch what happens. And he says, I saw between the throne, excuse me, he says, um, no one was worthy to open or look into it. Verse five, and one of the elders, they're described at the end of the 24 elders. There, these elders are described at the end of the previous chapter. He, one of them said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. Now, you're going to discover that who he's describing is the crucified, risen, and ascended Savior. We just came through Easter. One of my what-ifs that I lean to is I believe Revelation 5 may be describing an event, listen to me, that John would also write about in John the Gospel chapter 20. Remember resurrection morning? Mary finds, uh, is in the garden, John and uh, Peter come look in the tomb, they run away and presumably they ran right past the gardener. Mary stays there, two angels appear to her, what have you done with our, my Savior? And, and suddenly stop weeping. Then there's another voice that says, whom do you seek? And it was another, and she turned around, supposing him to be the gardener, and said, what have you done with my Lord? And, she, and all he had to do was say, Mary. And when he spoke her name, she says, Rabbanai, my Lord. She falls at his feet, grabs his feet. The Greek language here is sort of complex, it, but it doesn't mean don't touch, it means stop holding me. He says, you got to let me go. And he says, why? Let go, go tell my brothers, I'm going to my father and their father, but I'll be back. I, I know the ascension itself happens properly 50 days later. Okay, I get that. That's Acts chapter 1. They met him on the hill outside Jerusalem, and boom, he takes off and he's in the cloud. But I suppose that when he said, I'm going to the Father, see, Scripture says that he took captivity captive. Scripture says that he descended into the lower parts and made a proclamation to those righteous dead held. And and I believe the proclamation was, come with me, we're leaving this place. And it says he took captivity captive and led it triumphantly, which is, by the way, what the procession is when it says, oh, lift up your heads, O ye gates, be lifted up your everlasting doors. The king of glory is coming in. One of those moments happened in the heavenlies when they stood back and said, he's coming in. And look who he's bringing with him. How many are glad to be in that cloud? Crowd. Cloud's good too. Okay. <laughs> Woo, come on, look who he's bringing with him. Okay. So <clears throat> I believe that event may be being described here. He says, 
I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book. And one of the elders said, stop weeping. The lion who was from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so to open the book and open its seal. And I saw, watch this, between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders, that's an important verse, an elders, a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns, seven eyes, referring to the work of the Holy Spirit, which are the seven spirits of God sent out to all the earth. And he came and took out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne, he took the book out of the right hand, and when he had taken the book, the four living creatures, 24 elders, fell down before the lamb. See, the, the seraphim are no longer around the throne, they're before the lamb, and the father doesn't appear to be offended by that, okay? He said, they fell down before the lamb, each one having a harp, golden bowls, full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. How many know that's important? How many know when the lamb gets into the room, the prayers that have been held in a bowl all of this time that couldn't be effectively transacted between us and the throne of God. Suddenly, he says, I've purchased with my blood the right for those to be heard. And I, I've often thought the first thing that happens is it bringing, just turn to somebody and say, not one of your prayers are lost. Not one, not one. Love is breaking through when the lamb is in the room. <laughs> oh my. And they sang a new song. Not holy, holy, holy. Holy is an observation. Worthy is a testimony. See, we can, demons look at holy, the Bible says, James chapter 3, I tell you this over and over, and they can make an observation, God's holy, but they can't say God's worthy because they've never been touched and redeemed by holy. You see, when you touch holy, you're made worthy or, or you die. But by the blood of the lamb now, we can come boldly, Hebrews says, to the throne of grace and receive mercy. And there's a reason for this sequence, mercy and then grace because you got to pass through mercy to get through grace. Guess what? There was no mercy at the throne of God before the lamb got there. There was only holy. And beloved, if you're left to face holy without mercy, that's a scary moment. Ask Isaiah when he suddenly popped into that other world and he said, I'm dead. I'm a man of unclean lips. Watch the language that's used in Isaiah 6. Go read it. It says, and one of the seraphim flew to me, touched my lips and said, you are atoned. Implication is temporarily because the atoner is still to come. His seat is still empty. It was called a mercy seat. That, that, there's a lot to that. But in this scenario, the lamb has taken his seat. The lamb has taken his seat so that we can come boldly to the throne of grace, pass through mercy, and get the grace we need. I gotta say that again. Do you understand in the Old Testament, Gabe, I texted you at the last minute, son, were you able to dig up that picture? You gotta see this because you'll, you'll see the threads being filled in. Were you able, no, okay. <clears throat> I have somewhere on that computer I taught a couple months ago. It's a picture of the Ark of the Covenant. On your phones you could Google it and say image, Ark of the Covenant, you would see it. And what the Ark of the Covenant is, is it was in the holy place, the holy of holies, if you will, uh, and only the priest could go in there and they would have to sprinkle the blood of what? A lamb, lamb. See the lamb of God here? His blood was, Hebrews says, one more blood got sprinkled and we don't ever need to sprinkle any blood anymore. And that was the blood of the lamb of God. See, blood from the lamb would be sprinkled and the high priest would get to come in and it said, and the father's presence would manifest it and he said he would be enthroned above the mercy seat. He didn't sit on it. Holy doesn't sit on the mercy seat. The Lamb of God does, okay? But there's a way we can get to holy and it won't kill us. We need that mercy seat occupied. 
The good news is, Hebrews says, when Jesus died, he took his seat at the right hand of the Father. Revelation said, John says, I saw the Lamb show up, and there was the throne, and there was the seraphim, but I saw somebody else worm his way in there and take a seat that wasn't there just a minute ago. Everything changes when the Lamb is in the room. Woo! It says, and they sang a new song. That word means made new again. There's two words for new. One means new in time and space. In other words, it didn't exist before now. That's not the word here. It means it existed before now, but it had grown old and beaten, but it was made new again. Suddenly something happens in the heavenlies. Now, this continuing scene, I, I would love to continue, but what struck me is if you go forward to, let's see, Revelation chapter 12. We're going to go there. Gabe, Revelation chapter 12. Pretty sure it's verse 10. <clears throat> Here we go. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now remember, we're still in the throne room scene. You lose that because there's a parenthesis that starts at chapter 6, but it's like all of this stuff from chapter 6 through 10 or 11 is going on, and then chapter 12 hits, and all of a sudden you get another glimpse of the throne room again. So let's just establish our own little chronology here, because as it begins to happen here, it says he came in, uh, that, uh, now I heard a loud voice saying, watch, salvation and the power and the kingdom of God and the authority of his Christ have come. That's the ongoing announcement in the throne room. What if we just picked that up right from chapter five, that it says when the lamb is in the room, he didn't say, he, didn't, he doesn't just say, I found one worthy to open the book, and let's just fast forward ahead real quick. And then suddenly there was a loud voice as the lamb takes the book from his hand, and it says, and now, salvation. You realize there's no salvation if the lamb didn't take the book in his hand. There's no salvation if he's not before the throne of God interceding for us by his blood. John would also write those words in 1 John chapter 2. John writes about this stuff. You got to get all of his stuff for the fabric to come together. Watch this beautiful picture. I love it. He says salvation. Watch this. There's no power if the lamb's not in the room. There's no kingdom authority if the lamb's not in the room. He said, but the, he says, salvation, power, the kingdom of our God, and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, he who accuses them before our God day and night. Now, we, we wonder who this guy is. Let me see if I missed it. I did. Verse 9, you got to go back. My bad. Got to give a brother a break. I'm doing it from memory. And as I tell you so often, I hate it when the Holy Spirit brings a scripture to mind and he forgets where it is. <clears throat> it's terrible. I talk to him about that often. Verse 9, and the great dragon was thrown down. Who's the great dragon? It's almost if John says, thank you for asking. The serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan who deceives. He's describing the serpent in the garden of Eden who did what? Deceive. First act of evil recorded in scripture is deception. I believe through the years there's nothing more evil than deception, and that's worthy of a deep dive on that. He says he was thrown down, the serpent of old, who was call, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. We're going we're to go that just for a minute. 
And then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down who accuses them before our God day and night. And I love these words. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. Here's what he's telling us. I want you to know, everybody look at me, that there's never a moment when testimony, that is the declaration of what God's done in my life, big picture, little picture, momentary. There's never a moment when you dare to put the testimony of the cross on your lips that the force of the blood of the lamb is not brought to bear on that moment. So what do we do the next moment the accuser shows up? Because he will. You see, he was cast down from there when the lamb made entry. He was cast down, but where was he cast down to? Here. So I've told you, there's two thrones. There's the throne of my heart and the throne in heaven. The lamb is before the throne in heaven advocating. That's a judicial role calling forth an outcome that wasn't under consideration. Do you understand that on the death of the cross, on the the cross, he became what our defense attorney would do today, who has the audacity to walk into a courtroom and look at an indictment, evidence, and a pursuit of a guilty and and condemned outcome and steps up and said, I would like to represent an outcome not presently under consideration by the court, namely innocence. And I'm about to bring the truth to bear on that. Our advocate, Jesus, is before the throne of God, calling forth an outcome that wasn't under consideration prior to his death. The outcome, according to the writings of the apostle, was we were all dead in the trespasses of our sin, deserved nothing but death, didn't have anything but death coming, but then. But then the Lamb of God. Now, reciprocally, John, same guy would also write, We have now the Holy Spirit has come here, the Lamb has gone there, and he uses the same word. We have an advocate before the throne of my heart calling forth, if you will, an outcome not presently under your consideration. You see, we look at life. We look at life and say, there's no way this is going to work out because the accuser, where is he right now? He was cast down to earth. Can I just stick this in here for the fun of it? I didn't see it until I I was in a conversation with Rhea the other night. We were talking about it, and it just clicked. Watch this. Don, I think you're going to love this. That That the end of Scripture, it says we have the accuser of the brethren before the throne of God. But at the front side of Scripture in Genesis chapter 3, we have the accuser of the throne of God before the brethren. Twelve times in those opening chapters, God said, here's what I'm doing, and it's good. And I did this, and it's good. And I do this, and it's good. And I did this, and it's good. I will sing of the goodness of God. And it's good. As a matter of fact, it was so good, closing word of chapter 2 is there's no shame. This is a shame-free worship environment. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. But then the serpent was the most crafty of the beast of the field. And he slithers in, and he says... I'm here to tell you that God's not quite as good as you think he is. See, woo! when I saw that, I said, oh my goodness. Good news is we know his tactics. Now, in Luke chapter 10, Jesus, uh, verse 17, Jesus is, grab that one, Gabe. Jesus has just sent out 70 of his disciples, the 12 and some helpers. And they come back preaching and they come back and wonder and say, man, it was amazing that the demons are subject to us by your name. 
And he says, you don't need to be all impressed with that. Luke chapter 10, I think. Am I telling you the wrong verse? Uh, Luke chapter 10, verse 17. But anyway, in verse 18, Jesus says, that's nothing. For I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. That verb form is uh, an imperative indicative. What does that mean? It means um, I was watching, I am watching, or better yet, the form of the verb means I was doing, I am doing, but I'm not done yet. That's exactly what it means. And so he says this. He says, listen, there you go. Verse uh, 70, return with joy, saying even the demons are subject to us by your name. Next verse. And he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. And he says, you're going to tread on serpents, serpents and scorpions. So here's what he's saying. He said, I was doing, I am doing, but I'm not done yet. Watch this. He said, I was doing it in the vision I shared with the Father before the foundation of the world. I have been doing it just a few chapters ago when I was in the wilderness. He thought he could take the throne of my heart and do to the second Adam what he did to the first one, but I cast him down there. But I'm not done with my casting down. You see, there's going to come a moment on the other side of the cross after I die, after I'm resurrected. There's going to come a moment when I'm going to take care and finish business. There's going to come a moment where right now he's still before the Father. Matter of fact, he's been there ever since the last day of Eden. You know, I've had fun with that in the years past, talking about spirit time just in the, over the last year and a half that starts in the Garden of Eden. I have to catch up on that later. And after the last day when it says that they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden and the languages, if you heard me teach, I'll try to find the link for it. If you want it, just make note of it, send me a message, email, whatever, Tom at New Hope Online. And... Uh, um, boy, I've had three more thoughts. What was I just talking about? About what? The garden. That's it. Thank you. I knew that. Watch. Last day of garden. If you believe the Bible has some airtight uh, chronological timeline, and I don't know that I do, but it's fun just having fun with it. From the last day of Eden until the, the first day of the upper room, here's what happens. It's 1,450,378 days. If you believe that it's, and, and I don't know that you can force that on the text, but just for the fun of it, because they heard the sound of the God, Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, so let's humanize, if you will, the, fun, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit who is ever there waiting to act out the will of the Father, John tells us that, says he doesn't do anything on his own. He only does what he's told to do and says what he's told to say. He gets everything from the Father. That's cool. So he looks to the father and says, can I go walk with him again? He goes, not today. Day one, day two, day three, day thousand, day 3,000, day 4,000, day 10,000, day 100,000. Holy Spirit's driving the father crazy every day. Can I go walk with him again? Can I go live in him again? Un unadulterated, unmitigated, not yet. When? It's coming. He finally gets to day 1,450,378, 278, I forgot which. And he looks at the father. And Acts chapter one, 2, verse 1, uses similar language to, Acts, to Genesis 3, verses 7 through 10. And it says, and on that day, I believe the Spirit looked at the Father and he says, can I go today? And the Father leaned forward. Well, in fact, today is that day. And it says, when the day had fully come, they heard the sound. 
Humanity had not heard the sound since the last day of Eden, but today the sound. And today it wasn't a general wind blowing because I believe the Holy Spirit showed up, popped into the room and says, fellas, I've been bottling this stuff for one million, stuff up for 1,450,278 days. And I can't promise you that when I pop this can open, it's gonna be a gentle breeze. And it says, suddenly there was a mighty rushing wind. <laughs> I love that. I just love that. But here's what I discovered yesterday and this morning. There was another transaction. Because that says, if the Holy Spirit's here, the Son is there. If the Holy Spirit's here, Jesus said, I have to go there so he can come here. He has to come here so I can go there. So if the Holy Spirit was in the upper room, we know the Lamb of God was in the throne room. And the, what happened with that? What's the problem with that? Jesus popped in, and I believed he looked at the accuser, and he said, you know, we were doing it. It has been doing, it is being done, but I've just come to tell you today that you, see the accuser was also an identified agent of the court. One that had the power, go, go fact check it. One who had the power to appear before the judge and register a formal indictment. That's all he had been doing since the fall of mankind. They ain't worth it, they ain't worth it. Look at those stupid fools. They ain't worth it, kill them all now. Just get rid of them. That's the devil talking to again. But what happens when the lamb is in the room? Matter of fact, Pastor Matt likes talking about a moment of silence. I suspect another moment of silence. And it's about the time that he turns and he looks at the accuser and he says, you know, we knew this day would come a long time ago. I made a trip to pay for this moment with my blood. And I want you to know you may have held a place as an official agent of the court as the accuser but the Father has given me a superior judicial position in the courtroom before the throne of God. And that one is one of an advocate representative who not only has the possibility to call forth a new provision for humanity that should have been done to what you wanted done to them, and that is kill them all. But I got a new plan today. I was doing it, am doing it, and I'm about to get it done right now. You're out. Bam. I believe that's what happened. I believe the lamb was in the room. And there's not, listen to me. There is not any room in the room for an advocate and an accuser. Whether that room is a throne room in heaven, or whether that room is the throne room of your heart, or whether that room is your home, there's not room for both. So if the accuser, he can weasel his way in. Remember, he was cast down to earth. So, and it said, woe to the earth. Yeah, it's woe. Because every day, I don't believe at all that the devil is omnipresent, but he has agents. He has agents of accusation. Agents that want to beat us down and beat us to death. But let me see uh, if I can give you another verse of scripture that tells you this, and I can wrap this up right now. That love is breaking through and the lamb is in the room. Bring everybody back out. We're about to sing that again. Let me see if I'm forgetting anything. By the way, how do I bring, watch, how do I bring the force of the lamb to bear on the accuser. They overcame by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. You speak it. You speak it. You sing it. You pray it. You know, in marriage seminars that we've done, I don't know how many times through the years, 20, 30 times, I don't know. 
One of the most difficult things, believe it or not, are people who have been married 5, 10, 15 years, getting them to look each other in the face, declare promise, talk about words, and pray together. And I know why. See, prayer is talking to the one who matters most about the things that matter most. Now, the problem with that is when you turn your attention towards God, he's the one who knows you the most. Next in line, right behind him, is your spouse. So it can be incredibly intimidating for me to walk down here and take my wife by the hand and say, baby, let's pray. Because I'm about to start talking in front of the two people who know me the most. And only one of them may have any doubts about me. (laughs) And it's not him, thank God. She'll have to work through it. Jesus worked through it and said, I finished the work, Paul says, on the cross. I don't have any more work concerning you. So he doesn't ever doubt. Isn't that good news? But it's intimidating. How many got, come on, how many know it's intimidating? By the way, guys, I have an advertisement. We're supposed to do it at the front side. Thursday night, 7 o'clock. Every man in the room say Thursday night, 7 p.m. No, say, you got to do better than that. Say Thursday night, 7 p.m. There we go. At Rio Central, right there, the address. Get your phones out. Take a picture of that right now. Get your phones out. Right in the lower part of it, you can zoom in on it, see it. There's the address, 370 South Hollow Road, 7 p.m. Pastor Tommy Roberts and I have dreamed about something since the last uh, disaster relief trip that we took together with men from our church and men from Rio, and that was to come back here and have a men now. Now, N-O-W, stands for Night of Worship. Men now. We're going to cut together and worship, so get a picture of that. Uh, We're going to worship together. Uh, He's asked me to speak there that night, 7 p.m. So come, we're going to worship, we're going to have a great time, then we're going to go out afterwards and grab something to eat, uh, but you need to be there. Now, back. Everybody got a picture of that? Now, back to the prayer. It's so intimidating to do that, but when you look someone in the face and you declare the testimony and say, let's stand together for our home because the accuser has been in our marriage way too long. Let's invite the lamb into the room because the accuser can't survive. The accuser can't stay in the room where the lamb is. If we don't get anything else from this, we get it from that. He got to hang out there from the last day of Genesis (laughs) until a couple of days just before Pentecost when I love that, or maybe even before, when he ascended into the heavenlies on that day of resurrection. Everybody, come on, come on, come on. Are, Are you getting the fabric sort of weave? I'm telling you, it's the coolest thing. If I can whet your appetite to make you read the Bible, to say, man, if that's in there, there's got to be some other cool stuff. And there is. It is the most amazing thing. What voice are you listening to today? I love this. Um, Oh, 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 Romans 8, Gabe. Um, 33, 33 and 34. We got to, oh, good. I love this. Watch this. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Can we just pause there and fill in the blanks? Not the devil. Not the devil. Because this is a rhetorical question. You got to read the whole thing. He says, bad stuff's going to happen. I'll I'll move past that. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. I love that. That word is the verb form of righteous. Look at somebody and say, isn't it good? You need to know you've been righteousized. 
See, I drive through Burger King and I buy the Impossible Whopper because my doctor wants me to get away from red meat. I'm learning to survive that. And they say, would you like it supersized? How many know if you just supersized everything, you sort of just undid whatever it was you were trying to fix? <laughs> but I want you to feel like you're going through the drive-thru and the accuser's speaking, and then God says, wait a minute, I don't think I'll listen to your word. I'm deciding to righteousize Chip Bates. I've righteousized him by my blood, and that righteousizing wasn't just a one-time event. It's an ongoing action called sanctification, deliverance, whatever. And I want you to know that today on Sunday, Chip Bates, God's righteousizing you. Tomorrow on Monday, he's going to righteousize you. How many are glad you've just been supersized right in the face of the devil? Come on. I like that, all right? Who is the one who condemns? He Rhetorical questions. Well, we know who it is. But it says, Christ Jesus is he who died. Watch how Paul wraps up what John writes. Yes, rather who was raised, what happened after that? Well, I'll tell you, he went to the right hand of the Father, and here comes another judicial representation, who makes intercession. That means to speak on behalf of another. So here, watch. Here, oh, you gotta get this. Come on, come on, I'm serious. You gotta get, didn't see this until this moment. I've made the first joke, the first half. Who speaks on our behalf. I think we try to argue with the devil too much. And I think we got that from our parents, Adam and Eve. Because I think when the serpent, the accuser, first slithered in and accused God, he's not quite as good as you think you are, and you're not who you think you are relative to him, and then deception, fear, and hiding happens. I've often wondered, and I know they didn't have a watch, but indulge me, why they didn't just say, because see, they knew every day, how many every days, no one knows, that he would come to walk with them every day. Why they didn't just say, you know what? He's due to stop by here any minute. Why don't you just hang on and ask him yourself? You see, when we have an, an intercessor who speaks on our behalf. I didn't see this till right now. Jesus the righteous, the Bible says. Come on. So here's, the, here's, here's not the Garden of Eden. Here's Sunday, April 25th, 26th, tomorrow and the next day. Christ Jesus is he who died, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of the Father speaking on our behalf. He's there speaking on our behalf. The Holy Spirit who came at spirit time is here speaking on the Father's behalf. So here's what you get to do. When the accuser shows up and says, girl, you ain't nothing but, or brother, you ain't nothing but, or you, you know, or you know, uh, what was it? What was the what thing? Shame. Shame, Shamer Joe. Yeah. Her nickname when she was a child, Shamer Joe. You should hear her testimony. But you know where to go now, don't you? When any echo of that shows up, Shamer Joe, you don't bother to argue with the accuser on your own, do you? You just lift up a holy hand and say, talk to him. Talk to him. Talk it to him. And he's already spoken concerning you before the throne of God. If you'll stand up, I'll quit. Come on. Thank you for joining us for the New Hope Sermon of the Week. For more information about this podcast or other resources, visit newhopeonline.com.